He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so very grateful for all that you've given us, all that you've provided for us. We're so thankful for your word, and as we study the word and as we reflect upon its history, it's just profound. It's a miracle that we have a book that was written over a period of 1,400 or 1,500 years and that it has been preserved and that there is so much evidence of the accuracy of its preservation that this attests to the fact that it is not simply a human uh, production, but it was breathed out by you, and it, the preservation of the text was supervised by you, so that we have great confidence that we have that which you have revealed, you have disclosed to us, and that as we have studied in our passage in Ephesians, that because of regeneration, the eyes of our heart have been opened and so that we have the ability spiritually to be able to understand your word. That is a great potential, but nevertheless, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes study in order to come to an accurate understanding of your word. And Father, as we continue our study, we pray that you might uh, enlighten us by the Holy Spirit as to the wisdom of your word and that we might further understand all that you have revealed to us that we may know you more intimately, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, in our reading this morning, we read from Isaiah chapter 6, which is where we will go eventually in our study this morning. Isaiah wrote that book, wrote his prophecies in the 8th century B.C. It was a time of spiritual degradation in Israel, in the northern kingdom, and in the southern kingdom of Judah. It was a time when the people had mostly rejected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they had turned to false gods, to false systems of thinking, to idolatry, and they had given themselves over to you know, incredible levels of sexual uh, debauchery and immorality. And it is to that self-absorbed culture that reveled in their own personal pleasure that God sent Isaiah with a message. 
And God warned him, as we see at the end of Isaiah chapter 6, that he would go and he had a message to proclaim, but that people wouldn't listen to him. The more he would proclaim the message that God sent him with, the more people would turn their backs on, the more angry they would become, the more hostile they would become to truth. And he eventually was uh, ridiculed and rejected and mocked by the religious leaders and the cultural elites of his day. And in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 10, they're mocking him. And they're mocking what he is saying about his teaching. And so from that passage, we learn something about how he was teaching the people the Scripture. And they they describe his teaching this way. They say, for, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Now, from this passage, we and many have derived a basic understanding of the methodology of teaching the Word, that we teach the Word, here a little, there a little. We look at the words, we look at the phrases, we look at the lines, we look at the sentences to make sure that we clearly comprehend and understand what God has said to us. Sometimes this is tough plowing. Sometimes the language in Scripture, the way it is written, forces us to think more profoundly and deeply than other passages, let's say. I think God designed it that way because, as I've said many times, if God had just given us a systematic theology, a manual for the spiritual life, we would read it and we would put it on the shelf. But the way God designed his revelation is such that it forces us to stop and think, study, research. And every time we go back, it's just so marvelous. We see things that we haven't seen before. Uh, We build on the things that we've learned since the last time we were in that particular passage. And God uses all of that to expand our understanding of who he is and his plan for our lives and and how we can understand him uh, better. That's the focus of this prayer that we've been studying, this prayer of Paul's that begins in verse 17. The introduction is in verses um, 15 and 16. And in 17 down to the end of the chapter, it's basically the content of this particular prayer. And what Paul is saying, I just want to give us an overview of of what is happening here, is that he is praying that uh, as those who have already been enlightened by the truth, because that happens at the instant of our salvation, that happens at the instant that we are born again and we receive a new nature, and that enables us to understand the Word. It is a potential. We still have to study it. It's not mystical. We don't just open our Bibles and read a verse and go, ah, I know what that means. We have uh, many, many examples in history of people who sort of try to decide God's Word by closing their eyes, opening their Bible, and just pointing to a verse, and then they think they know what God has, has for them. And so as we look at this particular passage, The focal point of it is that Paul is praying that uh, that God would, that our knowledge of God would expand and that we might know God more personally and more intimately 
and specifically in three particular areas. Then those are uh, begun to be listed in verse uh, 18, verses 18 and 19, that we are to know the hope of his calling. What in the world does that mean? We are to understand the wealth of, it's translated the wealth of his inheritance, but it has the idea of the wealth of his possession in us. And it goes back to Ephesians 1.11 as we see that it's talking about the fact that we as members of the body of Christ are his inheritance. It's not talking about the inheritance we receive. It's talking about the fact that we are his possession and that we are to understand that, that he describes us as his possession in terms of this phrase, wealth, that we are the wealth of his possession. And then third, it focuses on his omnipotence, the unimaginable power that he provides towards us as church-age believers. And the illustration of that power is the resurrection and ascension so many people stop at resurrection, but it is, in the text, it's the resurrection and ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father in heaven. Now, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, we sing uh, one hymn that I know of that focuses on the ascension of Christ. There are very few hymns that focus on the ascension of Christ, that he is at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the Father to give him the kingdom, and then he will return, but that will not take place. His return to the earth will not take place until the end of the tribulation period. He will return for us as the church at the rapture before the tribulation, but he will not return to the earth to establish his kingdom until the end of the tribulation. And all of that, the knowledge of all of that is assumed by Paul to be evident to his readers so that they can appreciate what it is that he's praying for. Each phrase in this these verses is pregnant. It's loaded with meaning and significance, and that, unfortunately, in my experience, we see so many so many pastors and sermons that would summarize all of this in terms of the focal point of those three basic uh, points of prayer, and they would cover six verses in a 20-minute sermon and be warm and be filled, go home and be blessed, and that would be it. And they're missing about 99.9% of what is here. And this is typical for me as I get started. I know where I'm going to go. I know what I want to do. And I sit down. I get up early on Sunday morning, and I start working my way through it. And things open, and this opens, and I see this and that. And next thing you know, whatever it was I was going to teach today will probably be next week. As as there's just such a wealth of assumption here of what you and I know in these these particular phrases, and so it's important to look at that. So let me just give you the overview again of these three verses. Verse 16 ends with the fact that he says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And then what he follows that with is what he is saying in the prayers. It, it begins with a the word that, which introduces the content of the prayer. And he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding, having already been enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the, in the saints, 
And then I have verse 19 on this slide. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Now, as I pointed out when we started this section, actually verse 15 all the way down to verse 23 is one sentence in the Greek. It is usually broken up into several sentences in English. We had a fun discussion in the pastor's group the other day. We had uh, uh, taken some time to talk and learn a little bit about grammar and punctuation. I had all the men read a book called Eats, Shoots, and Leaves, which is a fun little foray into punctuation. And so we had um, a lady who is a a listener, Bryce's sister, who's taught grammar and punctuation and writing for about 30 or 40 years. And she was our guest in sort of taking questions and helping guys understand things about about punctuation. One of the things she commented on was that in writing style today, because our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter, that translators are taking these verses, uh, these long sentences of Paul, and breaking them down into smaller and smaller units and making them individual sentences problem with that in terms of Bible study is that a sentence is a basic unit of thought. So if Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has one sentence that goes from verse 3 through verse 14, that's one thought with a lot of secondary and tertiary ideas that are brought into it. And then when you look at some passages, I've seen as many as, as 13 sentences uh, broken down into that. Well, then that becomes 13 ideas. Well, that's a little different from what you have if you're studying from the original. You have the same problem when you get into uh, chapter, I mean, verse 15 down to the down to the end of the chapter. And there's even, uh, you know, there are just a lot of details that get into uh, those particular arguments. So when we look at this and we look at how this is broken down, the first two verses tell us what Paul uh, about Paul's habit of praying for his uh, his readers. And then he tells us the content of his prayer. And in English, we have, uh, I've highlighted the words, two different English, two English words, that. They're highlighted in blue. In English, it, they look the same. They translate different words or phrases in the Greek. And what that simply tells us is that the first that covers all of these verses. He's talking about the content of his prayer. And the second that, by using a different approach, is giving us a subset of that overall prayer. So last time when we got started, I said there's a lot of interesting problems in understanding this passage, not the least of which is whether the word spirit should be translated as an uppercase spirit or a lowercase spirit. And that would mean two different uh, two different things. And then we have to look at understanding the phrase, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. And so we took our time. We went to the end there with that phrase, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, and we started there. I started at the end, and I worked uh, back to the front. So what I want to do today is go to the front and start working forward a little bit. We ran uh, out of time a little bit, so I didn't spend as much 
time as I ought at the beginning of, of verse 17. But just to remind you, the Spirit there is talking about the God, the Holy Spirit, who is characteristically portrayed in the Scripture as the one who imparts wisdom and discloses God's will to us. That's what revelation means. So for those reasons and others, it can't be talking about an attitude of revelation. We don't have an attitude of revelation. We're not disclosing anything. So it must be God, the Holy Spirit, who is at the source here. And um, and then the phrase opening Ephesians 1.18 is based on a a perfect tense verb, the eyes of your understanding that have already been enlightened. And that happened at the instant of salvation. So this morning I want to start in looking by looking at Ephesians 1.17 because it focuses the prayer initially on God the Father. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give to you. Using the verb forgive there always emphasizes the grace of God. This is God's gracious activity to us in providing for us a means to understand the wisdom of Scripture and to understand this new revelation that God is giving that Paul talks about in Ephesians uh, as the mystery This word mystery doesn't mean that it's some sort of uh, uh, hidden thing that we have to search for and discover uh, the solution by the end of the book. It's not like a murder mystery where you're waiting until the last chapter when the investigator gets all the suspects together and uh, they, they go through each one and why they couldn't or why they shouldn't or whoever and then finally identifies the murderer. Uh, it's not that kind of a mystery. The idea of mystery in the Scripture in the New Testament is information, teaching, instruction that has not been previously revealed. So the emphasis is on the fact that in the epistle of the Ephesians, the mystery is that now in this age we have a new organism, a new spiritual organism that never existed before, came into existence on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33, and it is known as the church. It is identified appositionally as the church, the body of Christ, of whom he is the head. He is the head of the church. He is the ultimate authority of the church, and we are the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is no longer simply a body of Jewish believers. It is a body composed of Jews and Gentiles. That's what is new. That's what has not been revealed in the Old Testament. The church was not prophesied in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was all about being Jewish. It was all about worship in one central location at the temple in Jerusalem. And the whole focus is on the spiritual and physical seed of Abraham identified through the Jewish people. But it's different today. We're in the church and that is why the ch- one of the re- many reasons why the church must be raptured before the tribulation, because the tribulation is a time for the Jewish people. It is the, called the time of Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament, and it fulfills the 
the time frame that God revealed to Daniel for his people and for his holy city, and that his people are clearly Jews and the holy city is Jerusalem. And so in order to return the focus to the Jewish people, the church must be evacuated uh, from the planet and ahead of the storms of God's wrath in the tribulation period. And so uh, this is all about understanding this new revelation, but it starts with understanding who this God is, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. So two things are said here about God the Father. First of all, he is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and second, that he is the Father of glory. So what is the emphasis on the phrase that he is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ? The emphasis here is on the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ as opposed to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Earlier, we have seen that there is a reference to that he is the God, that, that Jesus Christ is fully God, and that we worship him as God, but here the emphasis is on his, his humanity. Now, this phraseology for us raises the issue of why is this important to emphasize the humanity of Christ and how are we to understand the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the early church, there was tremendous debate in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries over an understanding of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're, they're related to each other, but first you have to understand who Jesus is. And to understand who Jesus is, you have to answer, first of all, what is Jesus' relationship to the Father? And then second, who is Jesus in terms of his humanity? And so there were a lot of different attempts to try to articulate Jesus' relationship to the Father. Jewish background meant that you were a worship worshiper of one God. Is this a solitary unity, a solitary unity of one person and one nature, or was there a multiplicity of persons in the Godhead? Now, I'm not going to go through a whole doctrine of the Trinity here, but that even that term Trinity comes to us from a theologian in the mid to later part of the second century. His name was Tertullian. He was in, from Carthage, which is in North Africa, and he coined the term Trinitas to explain the multiplicity of persons in the Godhead, that there is one God, one essence, but he is three persons. Now, how do you understand that? And in the early church, there were a couple of different ways in which this was attempted to be articulated that were heretical. One of these was called modalism. And modalism is the idea that there is God who exists. But at one point in history, he expressed himself in a mode that is identified as the Father. And so the idea was that he appeared in the Old Testament, he put on the mask of the Father, and so you have the Father. But then 
when Jesus came, he now appears as the Son, puts on a mask, and he has a different mode of, of revealing himself. And he is now revealing himself as a son, and then you get into the church age, and he puts on a different mask, and he is the Holy Spirit. But the problem with that, they came to understand, is that you have one essence and one person. But the Bible speaks of Jesus as fully God and a distinct person. He prays to the Father. If you have modalism, Jesus would be praying to himself. If he is on the cross and he is crying out to God, why have you forsaken me, he would be crying out to himself. In fact, this became known by a Latin word that we, uh, it comes over into English as patripassionism, passion being suffering, patri being the father, that the father would have suffered, be the one suffering on the cross because it's the same person. So you have the father on the cross as well. And so it was deemed this is, this is heretical. And the, uh, and that was the wrong answer. The way we go through understanding things often is we make three or four attempts and we, in each one's wrong. And then finally we zero in on, on what the accurate expression is. Another way in which they attempted to understand this came to be called adoptionism. You still have one God, but he is adopting Jesus as his son at some point, either in eternity past or during his life, and he becomes adopted and he's given deity. So you still have one God. They're trying to preserve a, uh, this understanding. How can God be one and many at the same time? So you had this idea of adoptionism. And a problem in adoptionism is Jesus is subordinate to the Father, not just in terms of his role, but in terms of his essence, which means he can't be fully God because fully God, by definition, means that you're eternal. And if Jesus has a beginning either at some point in eternity past or at some point in time, then he's not fully God because he's not uh, He's not uh, eternal. He is derivative deity. And so you could chart out one form of adoptionism this way. We have eternity past on the left side. We have eternity future on the right side. And the lines, the dotted lines in between mark out the dimensions of history, the dimensions of time. And so uh, we have God existing eternally from eternity past into eternity future. And then you have within time you have usually at some point like the baptism of Jesus, you have God giving deity, granting deity, and adopting Jesus as his son when when Jesus is baptized and God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That is when Jesus is given deity and adopted as God's son. So it's derivative deity. Then you have another view. Well, let me, I have another slide here. So just comparing these two views of adoptionism and uh, modalism. In adoptionism, you preserve the unity of God, oneness of God. It denies the deity of Christ, though, because Christ is not eternal. It emphasizes and affirms the humanity of Christ, but it had a view of the Holy Spirit as just a power, not a person. In modalism which goes by other terms, 
such as Sabellianism or Patropassionism, they believe also in the oneness of God, but they believed in the deity of Christ, rather because he's fully eternal, he's just another mode of God's revealing of himself. So they affirmed the deity of Christ, but then they denied the humanity of Christ, and they looked at the Holy Spirit as simply another mode of God's existence. So both of them are being rejected. They're not quite getting it right. Then another guy came along. He was a bishop of a church in north, north, northern Egypt by the name of Arius. He was a deacon in the church, and he had a view that Christ wasn't elevated to deity in time. It's sometime in eternity past, but he's still a creature. There was, And his little phrase was, there was a time when Christ was not. And he was a musician, and he... Uh, wrote little little ditties and little songs, and so it, it was very popular. And so the popular music uh, all around the Roman Empire at the time was popularizing bad theology, and everybody was singing, there was a time that Christ was not. It was interesting, if you follow any kind of religious news or news about Christianity, that uh, just two or three weeks ago, uh, following a number of situations in the last three months where some contemporary Christian leaders and yet some young Christian leaders had completely apostatized the faith and rejected Christ. And these were people who were popular in contemporary Christian worship culture. And one of the men in one of these, uh, one of these uh, groups made a rather profound statement, and he pointed out that the, one of the great problems we have today is that most evangelicals are getting their theology from these rather superficial and often wrong popular contemporary uh, songs that they sing. That's nothing new. That's happened before. Uh, The problem is we have to really guard what we sing and what we say, and it's not about old versus new. It's about quality versus lack of quality. So... um, you have Christ who was created before time, in Ari- according to Arius, and then other creatures are created in time. That was declared heresy at the Council of Nicaea in 325, which is part of the reason they wrote the Nicene Creed, is to affirm the full deity uh, and full humanity of Jesus Christ. The scripture makes this clear. John 1, 1 through 3, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the modern form of Arianism is known as Jehovah's Witnesses. They deny the eternality of Jesus. But they have a problem here. What they try to assert is when it says the Word was God, in the Greek, there's no article with God. And so they assume that Greek is like English. When you don't have an, a definite article in English, you have an indefinite article, so they'll translate that the word was a god. Problem is Greek doesn't work like that. A noun can be definite just because the inherent sense of the noun is definite. God is a noun that is that way. But the absence of an article emphasizes the quality or uniqueness, something about the character of the, of the noun, and maybe the 
uh, use of an article is emphasizing something else. There's about eight or nine different ways in which the Greek article functions. So just because it's there or not there doesn't have anything to do with its definiteness or not. So this should be translated, the word was God, because theos is the word for God and is a inherently definite. And John is clearly making a statement that the logos, which we learn is a title for Jesus, is a second person of deity who is God but is distinct from God. When it says in the beginning, that means at the time of the creation he already existed. That's the imperfect sense of the, of the verb was. At the time of the beginning, the word was already continually in existence, and the word was already continually in existence in the past with God, two different persons. And then they're identified at the end, and the word was God. And verse 2 restates the fact that he was in the beginning with God. You have two persons. And then it states in verse 3, all things were made through him. Now that pretty much wipes out Arius' contention or the, uh, the adoptionist contention that Jesus is a creature. Because if Jesus created all things, he couldn't be a creature because he would be part of the all things. So he created all things that sets him apart from all creatures. And then we're given further identification in verse 14 of John 1, and he says, and the word, this other divine person, and the word became flesh, that is incarnation, that's what incarnate means, in flesh from carne which is the Latin word for flesh or meat. We eat chili con carne, comes from the same root. So it has to do with his bodily incarnation. And the word became flesh. It's not just an image. That was called docetism. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then what? We beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Now, that's helpful for understanding what Paul is saying in just this quick little phrase, the glory of the Father, or the Father of glory, rather, in Ephesians chapter 1. He's the Father of glory. And the way that should be understood, that genitive phrase of glory, should be understood in a sense of describing a characteristic or attribute of the Father. He's the glorious Father. And Jesus comes and he has the same glory in his, in his person. And when John says we beheld his glory, it's tempting to think of the episode on the Mount of Transfiguration when uh, Jesus takes James and, and Peter and John up on, the, uh, up on the mountain and he is suddenly transfigured and his radiance is, overwhelms them and radiance is often a, a, expresses the glory of God. And again, God tells them after Peter's mouthing off, uh, God says, basically, shut up. No, he didn't say that. He says, listen to my son. Uh, he's the one in whom I am well pleased. So uh, that's the overt glory. But when we look at John, John uses glory a little differently. It relates to the character of Jesus. And that's really the essence of what glory, glory tells us is it emphasizes the character of God. 
And when we read in John chapter 2, the first miracle, the first sign that Jesus is uh, gives at the wedding of Cana when he turns the water into wine, that at the end, John says that in this first miracle, they saw his glory. Well, it's not the glory like on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's the glory we saw his character. We saw who he was. We saw that he wasn't just a man. He was also also God. So when we look at this phrase, also it talks about him as the only begotten of the Father, a term that is used in the Nicene Creed to express that relationship. Uh, they said he was begotten but not made. And the word for begotten is the word monogenes, which indicates a unique birth, uh, a unique person, and that is, it's often translated only begotten, but that, that is difficult for people to understand, but that's the idea, he's one of a kind. And so he is, expresses the glory of the Father, and here again John shows that it's in terms of his character, he says he's full of grace and truth. And so he's summarizing the glory of God or the essence of God in those two characteristics there of grace and truth because he's going to emphasize those attributes again and again as you go through the Gospel of John. So when we read in Ephesians 1.17, Paul praying for the, to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking about the Father, and he makes that clear in this next appositional phrase, He's the father of glory. Now, you could take that genitive different ways, the father who produces glory, but it's probably descriptive, and it has its roots in the Old Testament, referring to the glorious father. This is how it should be uh, translated and understood, and it goes back to a passage. We read part of this this morning in our call to worship in Psalm 24, 7 through 10. Now, the context here is talking about worship, a time of worship in the Old Testament as the it would be a festival time, a time of perhaps related to Passover in the spring or first fruits or Pentecost or later in the fall. And we're getting ready to come to the high holy days in about three or four weeks, and you'll have Rosh Hashanah, which is the new year, and then a week later there's Yom Kippur. And so according to the Jewish uh, religious calendar, then at three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, and at Yom Kippur, all males in Israel were required to come and worship at the temple. And so this is a psalm that was written for worship at the temple. And so when it talks about lift up your heads, O ye gates, it is, it, it's using figurative language that as the worshipers are coming onto the temple mount, they are calling upon even the gates of the city to be elevated and to focus on the Lord. And the gates of the city are really a, a metonymy, a figure of speech for all of the inhabitants of the city. And so it begins, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the glorious king. So the everlasting doors is talking about the doors of the, of the temple, and it recognizes that, in, that God comes to uh, his temple. 
And so it is calling upon them to praise God, and the glorious king shall come in. Now, this is not talking about Jesus as king. Jesus isn't really identified as king in Scripture until you get to his return at the end of the tribulation. Then he is called the king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is not yet king because he has not yet been installed upon his throne in Jerusalem. Jesus' king is related to the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which doesn't happen until he returns. We are not in the kingdom. We're not in any way, shape, or form the kingdom. Go read your Old Testament list, all the attributes of the kingdom, and nothing like that is happening today. It is. It will happen only when Jesus returns and only when all of Israel is regenerate and only when all of regenerate Israel is in the land. It's not going to happen at any other time. So about 90% of evangelicalism worships King Jesus on Sunday morning, and they talk about doing work for the kingdom with every other breath. And it has nothing, that's not what Scripture is saying. They're totally off base. But here it's talking about Yahweh. He is the king of creation. And so we, the question is asked, well, who is this? Glorious king. Now, in the New King James Version, it translates it the king of glory. It's that same kind of grammatical construction that you have that Paul is using in, in, in Ephesians uh, 1, talking about the father of glory. This is the same thing, the king of glory. It's the glorious king. It's talking about his attributes of glory. And he says, who is this glorious king? The Lord strong and mighty. Notice glory here is defined in terms of his character, in terms of his attributes. And I pointed out many times that when we see the word glory, for example, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Glory was a term that was used to reference all of his attributes. What makes God glorious is who he is, his character. We've studied this a little bit. We're going to study a little bit more as, before we finish this morning. But the idea of glory is based, the Hebrew word is kavod, or, and that relates to that which is heavy or weighty, something that is therefore came to refer to something that is important. Uh, the heaviest organ in the body is the liver. In the ancient world, uh, they would talk about the liver as the, uh, as the important organ because it was the heaviest. It's the most important because it, it weighed more. And so that word is applied to that. Another uh, form of the word was applied to Pharaoh when it says that God, um, that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's the word uh, kavad there, and it means God made it heavy. He, he strengthened the previous convictions of Pharaoh to turn against the Jewish people. It doesn't have anything to do with their salvation. So the glory then is his importance. And so whenever you read the word glory, think about his importance, his significance, uh, that which makes him uh, important and central to everything in life. So what makes him that way is his in this passage, relates to his character. He's strong and mighty. He's omnipotent. He's mighty in battle. He can defeat our enemies. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift up your everlasting doors, and the glorious king shall come in. Who is this glorious king? 
Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, he is the glorious king. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is where we see this picture of this glorious king, and we've studied this many times in relation to worship. It is a tremendous picture of, of several different important things, such as the importance of cleansing from sin before we can serve the Lord. It also is a picture of the uh, glory of God and understanding that, but also of the holiness of God. So we read in Isaiah chapter uh, 6, verse 1, actually, beginning of Isaiah is not written in chronological order. Isaiah chapter 1 summarizes a lot of the themes that come across in Isaiah later, but this in, coming in chapter 6 is really the call, God's call and appointment of Isaiah to his prophetic ministry. It doesn't come until for five chapters dealing with other, other themes, but this is the beginning, so it's out of, out of order chronologically. And we are told here that it takes place in the year that King Uzziah died. Uh, he, that's, that's the time frame, and so we need to first of all say, well, what's going on here and when did this happen? And as I pointed out at the, at the opening, that at this time when Isaiah is called to ministry is a time of tremendous apostasy, tremendous idolatry and debauchery in Israel. Now, Uzziah is a good king. Uzziah is, has not gotten rid of all of the high places yet, we're told, uh, in, in the, um, uh, in Kings, but he has, uh, he, he emphasizes the worship in the temple. In fact, he got in trouble later in his ministry because he w- was impatient for the priest to come, and so he went into the temple when he shouldn't have, and so God judged him and turned him into a leper. So he was now unclean. He couldn't even come among any of his people, and he lives the last uh, 15 years or so of his life having to rule through his son in a co-regency because he is is a leper. And so every time he would uh, look at himself, look at his hands or whatever, he would be reminded of the fact that he had uh, broken God's law and gone into the temple out of his own own impatience. But he's a good king. And so this is identified for us in this year in which Uzziah died, which was in 742 B.C. Now, Uzziah is also known in 1 Kings as Amaziah. In Chronicles and in Isaiah, he's known as Uzziah. Uh, these names, either he had two different th- uh, names related to, the th- to uh, one a throne name and one a personal name, or maybe they're, they're very close they're spelled very similarly, so it could just be variants on the same uh, name. And then we see in the second statement that Isaiah makes, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the whole focus for us here is on the majesty, the, the glory of God. And he is, Isaiah has come into the temple. He hasn't gone into the Holy of Holies, but what happens is something that has happened only two other times in Scripture that I know of. One is with John, uh, the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, when the Lord Jesus Christ appears to him and he just sees right into heaven. Another is um, 
Well, you might have a third one when Paul uh, is transported to heaven in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, and another time is Ezekiel when he sees the throne of God in chapter 1 and again in, in chapter 10. And that's what Isaiah sees. And the interesting thing here is the word I saw, he doesn't use the Hebrew word chazah, which means to see something in a vision, but he sees ra'ah, he sees just like you and I are seeing each other right now. It is as God rolls back, he rolls back the veil so that the intersection between uh, heaven and earth, between this dimension and the heavenly dimension disappears. And the Psalms tell us that God is enthroned on the on the cherubim, on the Ark of the Covenant. That's the throne of God in the Holy of Holies. And this is what, what Isaiah is seeing. And he sees the, the Lord on his throne. He sees right into heaven. And he sees his, his train that just comes down off of the throne and right into the holy place where he is. And so he is just, he, he's just, uh, in awe as what is happening. He describes that Above the throne, there are these angels, the seraphim, or seraphs. Each one has six wings, and with one he cover, with two they cover their face because they can't look upon God. They would be just, they would be just gazing, staring at God, uh, because of His His Majesty and glory. They'd just be awestruck, and so they have to cover their eyes so that they are not uh, just just staring at God. And then with two, they covered his feet, which may be a, a euphemism for covering their bodies. And with two, he, they flew. And so this, there's all of this activity, and he sees all of these angels. And we see a similar description in Revelation chapter 4, where you see that all of these angels, not just the seraphs, but you have others that are surrounding the throne of God, and they're described as myriads upon myriads. And so Isaiah is seeing all of this, and he hears uh, what they are, ta- are saying. And they are singing the same thing here that they sing. This is 8th century B.C., and so 800, 900 years later, when John is in the throne room of God, they're still singing the same song, not like contemporary Christians who, oh, I've sung that song five or six times, let's find something new to sing. They're still singing the same song, focusing on who God is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So you see these two terms here, holy, which helps us understand what glory is. Paul is talking about the father of glory that glory is related to his character, and here it is specifically related to his holiness. This is the Hebrew word kadosh, and it refers to that which is holy, which is an antiquated word, and most people today don't understand what it means. You know, at worst-case scenario, you just think of Robin in the old Batman series as he's always saying holy something or other Batman uh, but holy has to do with something that is set apart or unique or distinctive. And even that comes across in this statement that, you know, as, as you hear Robin make this statement, holy, whatever, uh, what is he saying? He's saying there's something unique happening here, something distinct happening here. 
And so that, that still carries through, and that's the idea of holy. It emphasizes something that's unique, something distinct, something that's one of a kind, something that is special, uh, something when it talks about uh, utensils and furniture in the, in the, in the uh, temple, it's talking about that which is set apart to the service of God. When it talks about priests, it talks about that which is set apart to the uh, use of God. It, it emphasizes his uniqueness. Now, I don't have time to go through all of this. I've got a couple of slides, but one of the things that has struck me reading through Isaiah is how many times in Isaiah the focus is on the uniqueness of God. It drills it into people over and over and over again, and it comes out of the Torah. In Exodus 8.10, the first time we have a statement like this, uh, that is, let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. This is, this is uh, Mo- Moses. There's no one like the Lord our God. He's unique. There's nothing you can compare him to. People come up with all kinds of analogies for the Trinity. It's a lost cause, folks. There is nothing like God. Okay, all all. All, Im- all images or metaphors used to describe the Trinity fail at some point. Deuteronomy 33:26. there is no one like the God of Yeshua, and that's the, another name for Israel. And then we get into 1 Samuel 2.2. 2. We've studied this. This is the uh, psalm, the hymn of Hannah. And it, she begins, no one is holy, no one is unique, no one is distinct, no one is special, like Yahweh, for there's none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. We get into the psalm. Psalm 86, 8 says, Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord. You're unique. You're one of a kind. Jeremiah 10, 6, Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord. And then we get into Isaiah. Isaiah 44, 45, again, they just emphasize this again and again. Isaiah 44, 6 God says, I am the first, I am the last. Jesus uses that in the beginning of Revelation. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, there is no other God. Isaiah 44, 7, uh, or 44, 8, is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God beside me. Isaiah 45, 6, uh, that there is none beside me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 14, at the end, and there is no other, there is no other God. Isaiah 45, 18, I am the Lord, and there is no other, after listing all the things he did in relation to creation. Isaiah 45, 22, for I am God, and there is no other. For I am God, and there is no other, I am God, and there is none like me. Holiness applies to all of his attributes. He's uniquely sovereign. He is uniquely love. He is uniquely. There's no God that has justice. There's nobody else who is just like God is just. There's no one righteous like God is righteous. There's no one comparable in love to God. There's nothing comparable to him in terms of his eternity or his knowledge, his power, his presence. He is unique in being all truth summed up in him, and he is uniquely unchangeable. So you can't really uh, uh, define holy unless you define it in terms of each of his attributes. So he is three times holy, 
and the whole earth is full of his glory. It reflects his uniqueness. The creation reflects the, his uniqueness. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And there it means his, his attributes, his power, his character, who he is. It, it, it tells us a lot about him. That's what the intelligent design argument is trying to do, is show that the, intellig- that the design of the universe from microsystems to macrosystems could only be designed by someone like the God of the Bible. Isaiah uh, goes on and emphasizes this. We don't have time to go forward in that. But this is the background for understanding Paul's phraseology. He is the father of glory. He is the one that Isaiah saw on the throne high and lifted up. And this is the God that we worship. And it's not a God who is our buddy. It's not a God who is familiar because what we see immediately is that that Isaiah is going to cry out, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. And that doesn't mean that he's committed blasphemy. It doesn't mean that he has committed some sin of the tongue. Uh, what he is saying when he says a man of unclean lips is that, that he has heard the conversation of the angels. And they're all focused about God. What are they talking about? They're talking about the character of God. And he says, I talk about that. You know, he was like most of us. We talk about sports, but he had, you know, they talked about things. But what, what do we talk about? We talk about politics. We talk about sports. We talk about our kids or our grandkids. That's common. That's profane. And, and you know, Isaiah gets into heaven and goes, I'm not talking about God like that. He sees the contrast. He's concerned with these temporal, ephemeral things. And when he gets into the throne room of God, the angels are focused on the character and attributes of God. That's what makes everything work. He realizes that is what should be dominating our thinking, not these common, everyday, mundane things that, while they may be important to some degree, and he's not saying you don't talk about those things. I'm not saying you don't talk about those things, but when you think about all the things you spend your time talking about, what percentage is talking about the things of God, the truth of God, and the glory of God? That's what makes the God the glorious Father, is who he is and what he has done. And so the angels will come and the seraphim fly and they purify his lips. And this is a picture of he has confessed that he is a man of unclean lips, and so they cleanse him and they, and, uh, they say... The seraphim says, or the seraph says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is literally cleansed. It's the word that's sometimes translated atonement, but it's the concept of being cleansed. And then God is going to call him to service. There has to be cleansing before there's service and worship, and that is emphasized there. All of this relates to understanding the Father of glory. We have to understand who God is, we have to understand his attributes because it's on that platform that we can develop an intimate relationship with God, which is the focus of Paul's prayer, is that we may know him. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and reflect upon who you are. That as we read through passages in the Psalms and Isaiah 
others that talk about you and your essence and who you are, we realize that that we don't spend enough time thinking about it, talking about it, trying to grapple with what it means that you have created all things and that you have uh, redeemed us, you have saved us, and that you love us with a love that is so great that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. We barely have scratched the surface of the significance of these things, and so often we are just distracted by the immediate and urgent things of life that we lose sight of that which is truly, ultimately important. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who's never trusted Christ as Savior, anyone who is uh, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would come to understand clearly that that is not dependent on anything that they do. It's not dependent upon their character. It's not dependent upon church membership. It's only dependent upon trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. Scripture says that we are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be saved. We're to trust him. We're to understand that he is the one who died on the cross for our sins and that by trusting in his death and his death alone that we have eternal life. We are not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray for the rest of us that we would be challenged and that we would be motivated to dig deeper in the word, to think more profoundly about who you are, and to make you more a center of our life, that on a day-to-day basis we are worshiping you as we go through our lives from hour to hour. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing hymn. It's number 106, Praise Him, Praise Him. And I'm going to ask Greg Freehoff if he would come to dismiss us in closing prayer.